Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. We have uh, 482 cities in California, 58 counties, 5,226 subdivisions of government. It's a complex place. I cannot tell you how many governments, ministers of various countries, when I was speaker, 78 of them, come to talk to us, to look at what we're doing, to learn what we're doing. Everybody's interested in what we're doing in California, so it has a really outsized impact. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are now in season three of our podcast, What Could Go Right, having a series of conversations with stimulating people about why the world may not be falling apart, an idea that should not be on the face of it, particularly radical, but in our unhappy, pessimistic times seems rather extraordinary as a claim that the future may not only be better than we think, but we may be living in the world of our hopes and not of our fears at some undetermined point in the not too distant future. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how states in the United States can be really constructive laboratories of democracy, which is what they were supposed to be all along. And while it is certainly true that some states are laboratories of democratic ideas that some parts of our democracy don't like so much, people in Texas may not like what people in California are doing, and people in New York may not like what people in Texas are doing, and on and on down the line. And so it has ever been. It just seems to be even more acutely so today. And the negative way to look at this is that we are beset by partisan divides that are rigid and intense. And the positive way of looking at it is that states are places of great innovation and may innovate rather differently at any given time. So we're going to talk a bit about California in specific a little later on with Senator Bob Hertzberg, who is the outgoing Senate Majority Leader of the California State Senate and currently running for Los Angeles County Supervisor. So Emma, what what should we talk about that has gotten a little less notice that's under the radar? So this is something that both has to do with our California discussion and, you know, across the nation more broadly. I would like to talk about pot, <laughs> which is actually originally your idea. So I'm presenting it as mine, but I've taken it. <laughs> Roughly 40 percent of Americans now live in states where marijuana is legal. But because of the drug's federal status, cannabis businesses struggle with banking and pay extremely high tax rates. So will lawmakers here in Washington address this divide? So legalization, right? Wide swaths of the country are legalizing 
marijuana. A few are, are even talking about now legalizing other drugs that have been scheduled substances, right? Yeah, or at least decriminalizing. Yep. And that's a really radical shift from even 15 years ago, where it seemed unlikely, to say the least, that there would be any pullback from and questioning of the multi-decade war on drugs. And I suppose if you think that these substances are so dangerous and so societally destructive that it requires massive federal and state police and enforcement funding, then you probably view legalization en masse as a very bad thing. But even if you believe that those things are very bad things, if you look statistically, that there is no question that the war on drugs at a state and federal and international level has been a colossal failure, as the new president of Colombia, the country, not the university, uh, remarked in talking about his new relationship with the United States, that he's happy to work with the United States constructively on, on building a robust democracy in Colombia, but that the war on drugs as a way of doing so has been a colossal failure, then it's all a much more positive development. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about the war on drugs right now is the lack of news around the war on drugs, right? Like, that's how we know that it's petering out. You know, if you look at, like, for instance, Biden's positions in the 90s, he was definitely into the whole war on drugs thing. H.W. Bush was, Obama was. And his platform when he ran this time around was, let's peter it out. And we were talking about bipartisanship last time, and we sort of had implicit in the conversation that bipartisanship is is a uh, innate good. But there was a lot of bipartisan agreement over the, the war of, on drugs, and now there's actually a bipartisan agreement to stop putting these punitive laws in place around drugs. I'm sort of fall on the side that like if alcohol is going to be legal, then certainly why not weed? There's certainly far fewer car crashes that go on per year from potheads, and I say that lovingly, than from alcoholics. <laughs> so that's where I stand on things. How about you? Look, I think there's the libertarian part of this, which has always been the case, which is uh, should you create a society where people are allowed to do harm to themselves as long as there are laws about them doing you know, active physical harm to others? And I think we've tried to do that with drinking, right? Drunk driving is illegal because it can kill other people. It's not primarily illegal because you can kill yourself, although there, there's those aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's just the pragmatic, which is whatever we've done for the past 30 years has not demonstrably worked except to incarcerate a lot of people and create a really, really expensive ecosystem of uh, draconian laws and draconian enforcement. And Look, the one thing that is still a major obstacle here is that even though there's been a lot of state legalization of marijuana, there is still not federal. So it's federally legal, state legal. And there are some people who are really adamant about, look, the federal government shouldn't enforce the, these prohibitions on marijuana if states make it legal. The problem there is that opens up a whole complicated can of what about gun laws and what about, you know, we, we do have a system in the United States where there has to be some default to national and some default to state. Mm. And you've got to be careful about what principle you articulate, because while there, it may be true that some people feel like, hey, you know, California makes and New York state makes marijuana legal. The federal government should default to that. But then you can make the same argument about gun laws. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. I definitely hear you about the, the messiness of, of what to do at a federal level. And I hadn't thought about that previously. But, you know, back to the states as laboratory discussion that you, you brought up in the beginning. The other interesting part about this is that the legalization experiment 
in some of these states is actually going really badly. You know, the people who are trying to get into the marijuana business say that it's so hard to follow the rules correctly. The taxes are so insane that most people are still buying their marijuana from, you know, unlicensed (laughs) dealers. There's still a massive illegal weed trade because it's easier and cheaper. You know, if you if you pass a law to legalize something that also has an intensely powerful illegal market, you won't make legal competitive enough to compete with illegal. So it does raise these other questions of, are you creating uh, your own set of problems by trying to rigorously regulate while making something legal in the name of we shouldn't be enforcing draconian laws? Because then you just enforce a different set of laws. They may be civil rather than criminal. You may incarcerate fewer people, but you still create this really confusing thicket. Yeah, I mean, certainly thinking about it from a consumer perspective, right, because part of this overregulation issue is that it's just cheaper to go buy it from that guy that bikes to your house and, you know, comes to your apartment and drops up whatever you asked him to drop off. At least that's what was happening in New York uh, when I was still in New York. In that sense, if consumers are not choosing to buy it legally just because of the price, nothing's going to happen if they're buying it illegally. Uh, Certainly, (laughs) you could call that a failure. So I'm curious, you know, if states like California that are seeing people who are trying to get into the business complain whether they're going to adapt to this at all or react, or if that states, you know, we'll talk about this later with Senator Hertzberg, that tend to copy laws from California are paying attention to those lessons also if they're just going to copy them wholesale. Yeah, I mean, that's the other question about that, that laboratory of democracy, which is do states actually learn from each other? So what other news do we have of the day? Before we talk to Senator Hertzberg, more specifically about his state, it seems to be a influx of new legislation coming out of California. You know, there are some of the big ones that I'm sure that we're going to get into with the senator, you know, the, the banning of new combustion engine vehicles by 2035. That's a huge one. The state of California, you've heard of it before, <laughs> well, it passed a new rule banning the sale of all gas powered vehicles by 2035. So there's still some time. There's some time. <laughs> but there are also these other like smaller experimental ones that I'm not sure a lot of people have heard about if you're outside of California. For instance, that they're going to start the school day later. Yeah, this is a big one, right? That schools around the country, you had all these stories of kids waking up at 6 a.m. and having to get their school bus at 6.20 or 6.40. And then there were these studies that say young, young developing minds, sleep is way more important. And if you get in the way of that, unless they're going to bed at eight o'clock at night, which, uh, (laughs) you know, is every parent's dream and every child's nightmare, then (laughs) it, it, you create this really kind of counterproductive loop of underslept, less attentive, which then leads to overdiagnosing of ADD and other disorders. So you create this sort of cascade effect simply by starting way too early. And there's been a reform movement that says, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> we could we could avoid a lot of these problems that are so manifestly everywhere by simply starting a few hours later. And I saw some of the backlash saying that it's going to be more difficult for parents to drop off their kids before work. But on the flip side, you know, I know some people that, you know, their kids got to be at school by 7.30 a.m., which means they're waking up at God knows what hour to bring their kids to school. So I'm not really sure that I see that as a a potent critique, as it were. I see it more as maybe an indictment of people's jobs that they can't give them the grace to get their kids to school before they come into work. Or that we don't have systems that have better childcare, a whole other other issue. Or maybe we should just start the work day later 
and everything will just keep going later and we'll end up like southern Europe. No, no, I don't think we're going to end up like Greece where people work from 10 to 11, have a coffee, go to lunch, work from three to four. Anyway, something else, you know, just to mention before we talk to the senator is California is amongst a handful of states. It's I think 14 states around that number that have just passed rules around solitary confinement. Nearly 50,000 U.S. prisoners were held in isolation. They spent an average hours of 22 hours a day in solitary, often for more than two weeks at a time. A new bill in California hopes to cut down on that time. It's called the California Mandela Act. So now in California, you can only be in solitary confinement for a consecutive period of time of 15 days. And there's also a, a limit around how long you can be in solitary confinement over the course of a year. Right, because it's seen as cruel and unusual, an inhumane punishment. I mean, when you hear the stories coming out of people that have gone through it, I, I, I can't imagine being, being locked in a, in a room somewhere, not being able to talk to anyone, not seeing anyone, not having any human interaction at all for weeks upon weeks seems extreme. And I'm curious to see if that gets passed across more states as well, because there does seem to be a little bit of a trickling in. Like I said, around 15 of the states have passed legislation around that now. Yeah. So, again, this is one of those areas where will state level reforms and new laws lead to a, a national change in attitude? And wading into difficult waters, you know, one of the things that was true of Roe v. Wade when it was passed in the 70s, as a, as a Supreme Court decision was that many states had already moved in that direction. So there is an argument mm. for states kind of leading the way for social change, and that was true for gay marriage as well, rather than that change coming from Washington and then being imposed on states that don't otherwise support it. So I kind of like this idea that we should continue to focus more on what states are doing. But look, it's a hard story. News, local newsrooms have been have had their budgets eviscerated if they even exist at all anymore. Mm. Nobody's that interested in reading local news. You know, I, I'm guilty as charged. You know, I don't like pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Albany, living in New York. <laughs> I, mean, I you know, barely was aware of the fact that Albany was the capital of New York until I was X age. I was like, I thought New York City was the capital of New York. So it's a hard, it's like a hard sell in terms of what should we pay attention to, but it's a pretty important one. Yeah, it's true. I mean, just just to add a little personal anecdote around that, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, you know, we wrote about it in the newsletter and I had to go in by hand and go to all of the the states, a newspaper from from each state to make sure I knew what was going on. Because if you actually followed the national coverage, they we're all pulling data from one particular institute that had done some sort of federal survey, but was actually incorrect. So uh, it was an interesting little lesson in, okay, uh, this is my job, so I have time to do this, but who else does? So read your local newspapers, guys. All right, so let's turn to our, uh, our conversation today. So today we're going to be speaking to Senate Majority Leader Emeritus Bob Hertzberg. He was first elected to the California State Assembly in 1996. He then served as the 64th Speaker of the California State Assembly. He left government briefly to go out into the private sector as a clean energy entrepreneur. And then he returned to state government in 2014, where he began to represent District 18, which is the greater L.A. area. He's currently running for re-election to the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. So let's talk with Bob Hertzberg.
Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Thanks so much for joining us, Senator Emeritus Hertzberg, soon to be, we <laughs> hope. And what's the uh, honorific term for supervisor of L.A. County? What, do you, what, what will we, in theory, call you in, in a few months? Well, I don't know. That it's, you're going to say former speaker, former majority leader, speak, uh, the supervisor of Los Angeles County, 2 million people. I think it's something like more than 14 states governors or something it's a huge place the county is uh over 10 million but just the supervisor's district is uh, the communities represented two million folks i'll have to call you supervisor that's right okay so before that let's talk about state politics okay and we had a conversation before about you know states as laboratories of democracy this is supposed to be the way states and federal government works you know states are supposed to innovate see if things work test them out see if they gain traction nationally and you'd be hard-pressed to find a state where there's more of a laboratory right now than California, right? But it's what makes it so much fun to be in the state legislature because you can get stuff. You're not, in, you're not in Congress where it takes decades to get anything done and it gets so watered down. You actually can get things done. I can give you so many examples of things. Like right now, the whole privacy discussion is so much centered around the work that we did here in California. And I spent so much time on privacy. You know, the, the issue on abortion that we had with the Hobby Lobby case came out of California dozens and dozens of examples it's really it really it's what makes uh, the work so interesting and fun and in the last month there's been like a slew of legislation is that because the legislative period was editing i i didn't realize uh, until afterward i was like wow but california it's like they, every day i wake up and they've passed <laughs> a new piece of legislation part of it's the timing part of it's you know as speaker and majority leader the, the best part of the legislative sessions the last two weeks when everything gets done before that it's just a bunch of back and forth the noise and the like but what we did that was interesting this time well two things i think the dynamic that impacted the, the legislature 
Number one is for the last couple of years, the pandemic made it very difficult to legislate. We couldn't go in the other chambers. Committees were done remotely. Our bill loads were down by, you know, we instead of having 30 bills, we had five, which, by the way, is a good thing. And there was a lot of compression for to, to get stuff out. So there was that dynamic. And the second was the governor really put, pushed hard on a whole, on a whole uh, environmental package. We had been working in the Senate for about 10 months on a climate group, which I, which I was a part of. And the governor came in at the end and put a whole host of things together. And now we have 40 bills. There's 40 bills and $54 billion on climate. It's a pretty significant uh, step forward. So, I mean, one thing that's certainly in the news right now is the ban on combustion engine cars coming up in 2035. California is the first one, if I'm not mistaken. And then I think something like 17 states might might copy. And I'm curious, you know, there's certainly a lot of excitement around it for obvious reasons, climate reasons. But there's also, you know, people have concerns. There's the concerns of is the infrastructure in place to be able to support EVs? How are you going to drive, you know, a six-hour drive <laughs> and charge the car if there are no charging stations? There's the issues that haven't completely been worked out with EVs themselves, like can we recycle the batteries? How much does it cost to replace the batteries? What about, you know, child labor in the DRC? There's the price tag of EVs. So all of this stuff, how do you see that, you know, resolving by the time that this ban comes around? Objection, compound question. <laughs> I know that's quite a few concerns. <laughs> Be a good politician and answer the question you want to answer and not the question that you were asked. I'll answer them all. <laughs> I'll answer them all. <laughs> Look, it, it's going to be hard. Uh, we don't have the infrastructure. And, you know, full stop. We don't. Uh, on these power poles we've got outside of in my home office here is a 4,000-volt transformer. We need 20,000-volt transformers. But you set these ambitious goals. You know, if you look at California where we had the renewable portfolios, I'll give you a perfect example. Back in 75, when Jerry Brown, number one, the first Jerry Brown came in, he created Energy Commission. And we immediately set all these standards on appliances, energy efficiency for appliances. It's impossible. You can't get it done. You can't get it done. And what happened? It, it changed the country. Uh, every everybody changed the 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 way they built appliances. Uh, we we've seen the same thing with respect to a tailpipe emissions. When I was speaker, we did the tailpipe emission law. All the big companies were going crazy. They've all been met. If you look at Ford, Mercedes, General Motors, down the list, they all have. I think it's Mercedes by twenty thirty five only electric vehicles. So. Point number one is I think that shift's going to happen pretty quickly. That that that's occurred. Two, the infrastructure. One of the things that I'm going to do uh, as, as supervisor here is I'm going to do the financing and do all the necessary structure to be able to build stuff here. We import those transformers from China. It creates uh, you know uh, supply chain issues, national security issues, job issues. Just to create the economic framework and incentives to be able to build all that stuff here, then hopefully after we build it, to then to build it for the rest of the country to help kind of prop up the economy. Third, on the battery thing, is a big deal. This whole I'm not a big battery person. I, I, as Zach knows, I left the government for 12 years and traveled the world and worked on renewable energy. And and uh, one of the, my technology, my new solar technology, basically replaced batteries because they're heavy metal. The le all of those issues, the 8,000 batteries in those trays, they're ridiculous. The technology is moving quickly. Glass batteries, whole new technologies are going to change both with respect to charging and how long a charge lasts. 
And I think that this battery world is just a, a near-term transition. I think there's a significant move. I think they're expensive. I think they're dirty. And I think it's a short-term move. But, you know, it's just kind of the evolution of the transformation of what has to occur. But, you know, look, laboratories are places you experiment. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. You course correct. You figure it out. But the mission is correct. The, the idea to reduce GHGs, the idea to offer that lead, you know, one of the folks, when they argue on the floor and they say, why are we doing all this? We're such a small percentage of the globe. And my argument is exactly what was indicated here as, as a, at the opening, which is we're a place that impacts the rest of the folks. You know, I cannot tell you how many governments, ministers of various countries, when I was speaker, 78 of them come to talk to us, to look at what we're doing, to learn what we're doing. I go to the cop in Poland. I was a cop in Scotland. I'm going to cop in Egypt. That You know, that's the the UN conference, and everybody's interested in what we're doing in California. So there's a really outsized impact. And as I said at the beginning, this is why it's so much fun to be in government in California, because it, it, it is not just about Biloxi, Mississippi, and nothing against Biloxi, Mississippi, but that's it. Here's the pushback on that, which is, it's one thing to be a smaller state or a smaller country. You know, it's one thing for Norway or a place of 5 million people to kind of innovate and try to do something for their own ecosystem and other countries and other states learn from it. Some of the pushback on California is, look, if California were its own independent country, it'd be like, what, the sixth largest uh, economy in the world? Fifth, almost. When I was speaker, it was the fourth. It's now the fifth. It's about to be the fourth. We're about to pass Germany. So, I mean, in, in those terms, what people say about California negatively when it does that is you're not just experimenting. You're sort of end running a the federal government because it becomes really difficult for large companies. And this might be true for auto companies to do like differential supply chains, one for California, one for the nation, one for the world. So in many ways, it's a it can be seen. And again, I'm speaking about this is the pushback against these things when it's about California. It's like a coercive back end way of forcing the rest of the country to do what California wants, even though that may not be the case. And therefore, you know, does the bar have to be higher for that kind of experimentation, particularly when it applies to multinational companies and their own supply chains? I think it's a, it's a fair it's a fair criticism, and I think it's correct. I think the example of appliances, the example of tailpipes, the example of EVs is true. I think the example now with respect to privacy that what we did in California and the federal government not being able to really get anything done and uh, setting those bars. I think that's a fair observation, and it it needs to be considered. I, I think that's. Uh, uh, it's the truth. And and uh, I mean, I kind of like it because we get to draw the policy. But uh, but I think it's an honest it's an honest observation. So let's turn to another one, which we, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about. And that's how a kind of a at least in theory, a deregulatory measure, right? The legalization of recreational marijuana, uh, which has been a big deal in California, also because California had one of the largest medical and and illegal markets. A few years in, it's kind of a mixed, it's a mixed bag, right? And that the desire to both the, like the libertarian desire to deregulate, to, to make legal something that had been illegal cascades against the regulatory desire to, we're going to, we're going to make this legal, but we're really, really going to control it, right? We're going to tax it. We're going to control the distribution. Everything's going to be licensed, you know, license up the wazoo, marked products, you know, and the net result a few years on is there's still this massive illegal industry, right? Because a lot of people are right. like, hey, I'd much rather buy stuff cheaply and easily and, and grow it because the regulatory framework is so onerous. You're right. You're, you're, ap 
You're absolutely right. And it's true. We, we overplayed the hand. We thought we were going to make all this money. Everybody jumps in. You know, when you're dealing with government, everybody just piles on and put, and it hasn't worked. Uh, where taxes are too high, the regulation is too strict. We've just reduced the taxes some. We're going to have to reduce it more. Because what's clear is the is the illicit market's going to beat it, and and it's exactly correct. And everybody had these expectations that you were going to, you know, we'd be living in the in the platinum state, and not just the gold state, because <laughs> of all this dough. And um, they were wrong. And it, it it's uh, we've got to, we've got to course correct and and put together a regulatory system that works. There's a lot of compression to do that on the taxes, on the regulatory environment, and I think you're going to see that. Uh, and I think you'll see more next year. There's been some this year. Because uh, uh, we overcooked it, there's no question. So, uh, Senator Maris, this is a question that's that's linked also to the marijuana conversation, uh, but also its own, you know, separate thing. I know you're really passionate about bail reform, cash bail reform, and that it didn't pass, you know, in this last legislative session. I was wondering first if you, you know, uh, opportunity to say your piece about what would have replaced the cash bail system, because I think that since most people don't understand an alternative, you know, like you can't even begin a discussion. Like if someone was like, we're going to replace the system, it's like, with what? So what would have been replaced with? Well, the federal government doesn't have cash bail. Basically, what's bail? What's bail? Bail is put up something of value so that if you get arrested, you're innocent to proven guilty. That makes you show up in court so there'll be a trial and you'll determine whether you're guilty or innocent. That was the theory behind bail. You know, my dad was an old lawyer in the 40s in California. The bailiff would ask for $100. They'd give him $100. The person made sure they came back to court to get their 100 bucks. It's been institutionalized by the insurance business. And because judges don't want to take responsibility if someone gets out on a bail and then they commit a crime, that they're going to get in trouble or they'll get recalled. They have these horrible schedules where the, the $50,000 is the average bail in California. You break a fingernail, it's 50,000 bucks. And what's happened is, what's happened is that the bail companies basically charge you 10%. So it costs you five G's. You got to go get your aunt and your uncle and your girlfriend and everybody else to put up collateral. You give them the five G's and um, you're out. And what's happened is it's created a two-tier system in society where poor people, you get two people in a bar fight, one person can afford the 5Gs, the other one can't. One person stays in jail, the other person doesn't. They lose their job, their family, their kids, all the various things, their rent in their apartment, and they cop a plea, and it's created a horrible system. And so what I was concerned about, I've been working on this now for six or seven years, is to be able to deal with, if someone's a flight risk or a public safety risk, you keep them in jail. No question. This is not about opening the doors. People think that bail means you're letting people free. What it means, if they're not a flight risk or a public safety risk, they have a they have a right to have their life and then come in and get charged and then have a hearing accordingly. That's the purpose of our system. And so what we did in California, the first time in over 40 years, I talked to Congressman Howard Berman, who did this in 81. He said, Hertzberg, you're wasting your time. It's never going to happen. And I was able to pass it. And basically what we did was we created a system of algorithms where the judges would look and the judges would make a determination um, whether or not someone was a flight risk or a public safety risk. And if the judge made a determination, they'd stay in. If they didn't, they'd be left on conditions. They'd be let out on conditions. And so the bail industry basically shut them down. We got rid of cash bail. And the bail industry went, Okahui, and you know, put it in the ballot as a referendum to try to re recall it, re re overturn the law. 
And there was something funny on the way to the forum because both the left and the right went against me on the on this referendum. The 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 bail people, you know, said this is horrible, blah, 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 blah. And the people on the left basically said that by giving judges more discretion, more judges will keep people in jail and this will hurt more black and brown people because judges are too scared if you release somebody, they're in trouble. So it lost on the ballot. What I came back with. It got wrongly referenced bail reform. It wasn't bail reform. It had just two things. One is it got rid of the forfeiture. What happens is, so Zach goes in and he gets arrested because there's a little bag of white powder on his on his uh, passenger seat. I really wish you hadn't brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets arrested, and and he goes down. He's scared to death. He pays the hundred thousand dollars to get out of jail. And the next day, from the crime lab, it says it was baby powder, and charges are never filed. He loses his money. It's a forfeiture. Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> and I basically said no forfeitures. I said the company can keep 10% for putting up the paperwork, but they got to give Zach back his dough. Mm. And they went crazy because that's how they make the money. These forfeiture deals are crazy. And I was just it was really a consumer affairs thing. But because it, I amended an old bill, they thought it was bail. The bail companies went crazy on it. And that's what I was doing. So that is an interesting segue to cities, right? You have an interesting trajectory politically in that people who have ascended to the positions you have in state government often look to federal government as the next thing, right? They're like, oh, I've done really well here. I'll go be a congressman or I'll go be a senator, or at least I'll try to be. But if states are a laboratory, you know, cities are even, you know, a more variegated one and and where a lot of just local issues and daily governance gets done. I mean, it, is, it has been interesting to me to observe both in the United States and around the world, you know, cities are often where partisanship goes to die and pragmatism reigns supreme. And that most people, you know, they live in daily, they need the snow plows to work. If you're in a Northern place, they need the electrical grid, you know, whatever it is, right? These are people want things done. You know, they want, they want traffic lanes, they want, but they also want safety. And then, and increasingly that's a major issue that has been stoked certainly for partisan utility. Like, oh my God, the cities are terrible and they're falling apart. And this is all because of these policies. But people also just want stuff done. And, and one of the things that's been really challenging in a lot of our major cities is, is, is what to do with the unhoused, the homeless. You know, what's, where does this come from? What are some of your thoughts about that preliminarily? And why has this been such a hard, you know, with this incredibly rich country, we have a lot of resources. We spend a lot of money on a lot of things. You would think this is one thing where it's a it's a major issue, but it's certainly not it's not financially unfeasible, right, to house people. So, like, why is this such a big deal? Well, let me start with your premise. It's interesting. You know, it depends. We have uh, 482 cities in California, 58 counties, 5,226 subdivisions of government. It's a complex place. And in some areas in cities, whether it's things like picking up trash or even the money that you need to repave the roads often comes from the state or the federal government. So these interrelationships are really quite important uh, to be able to get the money or often the legal authority, because often we have what's called general law cities that basically operate under the authority of the state. So there is this inner tie that is unique in California, number one. Number two is on the housing issue and the homeless issue. What's really going on here, in my judgment, is it's kind of a co convergence of a couple things. 
we ha- we don't have a we don't have a money problem. We've got more money to do anything. It's unbelievable. We just put 18 billion bucks into housing homelessness stuff in the budget. I mean, just crazy numbers. There's more money. There's two billion dollars sitting in a bank account for mental health that hasn't been used. There's a 116 million we wrote a check to the local county on something they haven't used for three years. Plenty of dough. It's a management structure of these complex relationships of government and nobody is in charge there. It is easy to, you've got kind of a NIMBY problem where, where you've got 88 cities in the county. And my opponent, for example, has 38 homeless people in the 1.9 square miles that she represents that's running against me against 4,700 miles of the county. She says, we've solved 80% of the problem. You moved them to Beverly Hills or you moved them to East LA. You got to think regionally. The complexity of the 88 cities the domination of L.A. City in a place that's only 40 percent of the county, the ability of everybody. Well, I don't want it in my community. Will you put it over in your community? Well, let's put them out in the desert in a camp or whatever it might be. And so there's no legal structure that exists. So we keep writing checks in the county from the county to the I mean, from the state to the county. And the county keeps hiring a bunch of folks that, you know, make a lot of noise and nothing happens in the meantime. The countless count just went from 66,000 to 69,000. And I think it's probably 25% off because the count is ridiculous. It just doesn't really count people. And it's it's really a governance problem. And it's really one of the big reasons why I chose to stick my neck back in the government. It's hard. I want it out. I was done. I finished as majority leader. I became, you know, and, and did all my stuff. And I did this because I'm just so pissed off and I'm going to get in. I'm not running for nothing new. And I'm going to do what it takes to take on the responsibility to make it happen. And if I don't, then uh, throw me out of office, as they say. So just really quickly, as as a, the, the flip side of, you know, California as a legislative export economy, shall we say, of legislation, have you seen anything that you could import from other states vis-a-vis the homeless issue? Or is it just that California is such a unique place when it comes to these, the structure, you know, the management, like you're saying? Basically, is there any solutions that you would you would like to see implemented that other people have already succeeded at? Well, Houston's done a good. I mean, the, the, the homeless thing is is you know you've got the, the the substance abuse, fentanyl, which is a big huge problem. You've got mental health and the like, and then you have the the economic issues where people are just you know have a job they don't make enough money and they're living in their car. You know, Kroger. I saw a report that one of seven of Kroger's employees are living in their cars. I mean, because they can't make enough money to make rent on the deal. You know, I, I, I mean, Houston's got a pretty good plan with respect to some of the housing issues. I know Utah had a housing first idea that we came and we watched. Um, I, as majority leader, I just had a, a big meeting in, in Beverly Hills and had majority leaders from all over the country kind of sharing ideas of what they're doing. I used to do this with the National Speakers Conference. And the last two years, I've hosted it once virally and once in locally in the, on the majority leaders conference. But, but really, it's not really because we've got union issues. We have different management structures. Structures. Um, we have uh, huge red tape issues that are much so much harder to do. I have, a, I mean, New York's done a great job. You know, they've, how many billions of dollars have they spent in what they're doing? We're spending peanuts compared. If we spent in, on a per capita basis what New York had, we wouldn't have a problem. And then you've also got the the legal issues where, I mean, there are whole groups of people here in California who've been to my home protesting and stuff, and and they they basically think people have a right to live on the street. This case in uh, was it. Idaho, the Boise, Idaho case that you have to live there. There are people, advocates on the street. When we're trying to get them off the street, they say, no, you have a right to stay here. And they're giving them money and taking care of them. It's really a big political tension. The only thing I would share one of the things that I think is interesting as it relates to Los Angeles is there has been a real rise in the left 
at an activist level that I haven't seen. We just elected a city council person who's an abolitionist. Abolitionist to me from school had to do with slavery. Now it means getting abolishing the police. We have a whole DSA, D- Democratic Socialists of America, who've basically infiltrated the Democratic Party, which used to be a bunch of you know Bolsheviks and uh, labor people, and now it's completely different in terms of what they're doing and how they're doing it. So it's it, it, there's a real there's a real challenge. We've got a city controller candidate and some other city council members, and there could be a real shift here locally. And they've done a great job. I give them great credit for organizing, not particularly honestly, and har- ballot harvesting because we've changed the laws that allow 30 days in May voting and so that's all given opportunities so that political architecture has created so much greater tension between the left and the right uh, and we'll see what happens in this election and of course you know oddly enough that's juxtaposed to a, a national republican movement in congress to defund the fbi so you have you have the that's far right. left you know doing abolition of local police departments and you have the right now saying well the fbi is all corrupt and they're going after trump so i i don't know Maybe those coalitions will find some sort of bizarre middle ground. It's hard to, <laughs> don't hard think to so. imagine. But it's true. You've got the right at the national level. You've got the left at the local level. It's really an interesting dynamic. So I guess like final thoughts on that, because back to that pragmatism. And you know, one of the things we try to focus on in the Progress Network is the degree to which there is a lot of actual problem solving going on. We just don't pay as much attention to it because it's not news. Right? Right. It's not exciting. It's not dramatic. It's not sexy. Conflict and crisis are the coin of the realm because, and that's just human nature, right? That's not, I'm not really indicting anyone for that. So you spent your life getting things done, but I wonder is, is part of the problem of, of, of things becoming too uniparty, like one party in any state is that you lose that muscle, right? I mean, if you're only working with Democrats, if Democrats are only working Democrats, they can forget the fact that there may be a lot of people disagree with them. If, you know, the Texas state legislature is, entirely dominated by one strain, you can kind of forget the fact that there are other people. How do you continue to make sure those muscles get used, which is we, you know, we may not like the people we have to work with, but that doesn't mean we don't have to work with them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The only thing I would share, I just want to put a little finer point on that. And that is that what's happened is like when I ran for office, the Republicans were in control of the legislature. Now we have beyond super majorities. What happens inside a caucus when that occurs is that you have conservative elements who won in Republican seats in the Central Valley and other areas where it had, had been here to four Republican seats. And so now you have this horrible tension within the party. Here's how it manifests itself. When I was speaker, I had to really work hard and, and we had two thirds on the budget to get. And, and we, I worked on a law to change it to 50 percent plus one, like the federal government and 48 other states. But it's changed the dynamics so that leaders don't really care about those. They're worried about fights like, oh, I don't want this Democrat against that. Let them fight it out. And they're not worried about maintaining their power. So what's happened is it's created these horrible fights within the party. We don't really have very many fights with the other party. You know, I, as majority leader, I sat down every single day before session with the leader of the other side. What do we want to do? How do we want to get it done? We never had any beefs, nothing. If somebody had an issue, talk about your issue. We worked it out. Never had any of the kinds of stuff that we had when I first started where it was adversarial on every single motion and every single issue. So it's been pretty good. It's actually the fight is within the party and they're pretty ugly. But but what happens is it's hard for leadership to, to engage because they don't have to worry about losing. They got so many members, they're never going to lose their power. When you're a leader, all you wake up every morning and someone can put a microphone up and say, I make a motion to vacate the chair and you lose your job. It's not like you're elected for a term. So your mentality is very different. So you don't think about that. And it's changed the dynamic. So it's really quite interesting. But I 
you know, I, I, I had an opportunity to elect a few more Democrats when I was speaker, and I kept the money and didn't do it because I liked the tension. I thought the tension was healthy and and the like. And, and the other thing that's happened, which I think is really interesting to observe, is it's created an outside an outsized power of outside interest groups. I'm sorry, I'm not a potted plant. People come in your office and they say, I'm from this group and I'm from that group and you have to do this and this is a scorecard and this is how to be a true Democrat or a true whatever. And I say, go kiss my talkers. Are you kidding me? I didn't park my brain at the door and I get my head handed to me lots of times because I'm sorry. And but this it's they they just they get they pet out ads, they send mailers against you, things that before never would have happened. So you have these fights within your party and within fractions of your party where these outside outside interest groups, whether I don't care who they are, it could be labor, it could be environmentalists, it could be whatever, even with tax people and as as the Republicans. That are just over the top. And if it was me, I wouldn't allow the sons of bitches in the building. You know what I mean? Well, now you have to deal with another building. But Senator Emeritus, I, I like calling you Senator Emeritus. Senator, Majority a, Leader Emeritus. A, I'm still a senator. I'm still in office. A majority Leader Emeritus. We like, it has a kind of a gravitas to it. And yeah. uh, I'm also Speaker Emeritus. All of the above. How do you like that? I can't even spell the damn word. But look, we love the fact that you've dedicated your life to this kind of service. You really care. You're really focused on getting stuff done. I think a lot of people forget, you know, that there are people like you getting stuff done. And we certainly hope that you keep being an inspiration for the very idea of public service, which is, Mm. yeah, you don't even Mm. hear that idea phrase that much anymore. It's hard, man. You know, the other day I was out at a, at a pride parade and, and, uh, they told me they're going to, but they told us all it was going to be protested. So all the other politicians didn't show up and I'm the only schmuck who showed up and they surrounded my car and they said, we're not going to just throw you off office. We're going to cut your head off. The price of being in public service is hard. And so, you know, I was leaving government. I put together a book. It's not a regular published book because I needed permission from all the newspapers and stuff, but it's, it comes in the title of the book is working close. It's 486 pages. And it comes from a quote from Henry Kaiser that says, problems are nothing more than opportunities in working clothes. So as I leave government, which I was planning on doing, I didn't plan on running for this office. I was doing a couple of things. When I was in the assembly, I built the Capital Institute, which trained all the staff and members how to do their jobs. I'm now building, even though I'm running for another office and leaving the Senate Academy. And I wanted to leave people with some level of lesson. And so this book is over 100 op-ed pieces I've written over 30 years, first starting out in the riots in 92 and various subject matters. And the basic premise in the introduction is it took 40 times for the Civil Rights Act to pass. Don't think you're going to get elected and you're going to change the world overnight. Forget about it. Two, it says people in Silicon Valley work in two-story buildings because when they jump out of the building, when they fail, they only sprain an ankle. To try to send a message to the next generation to take a risk. So the first half of the book is all ideas that worked, things that I talked about 20 years ago that no one thought could happen on term limits, on redistricting, on open primary, on 50% plus one on the budget, on initiative reform. But the most important part is the second half of the book, shit that didn't work, stuff that didn't work. I gave it a shot. And, you know, and the message to the next generation is don't run around and do press conferences all day long. Think about it. Do the homework. Engage in risk taking, engage in thoughtful uh, endeavors and the like. And so I put that together and I passed it out to all the members of the legislature as I left. If I thought I was running for office, I never would have done it because now they're going to use all the stuff that didn't work against me. 
<laughs> so, hey, who cares? Amen to that. Amen, brother. Thank you so much for joining us today, Senator, and, uh, and good luck in the upcoming election. Thank you. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. After our conversation, I'm still left with that question of should states have not just the ability, which they will and should, to innovate and create, but should they be able to essentially impose a local standard nationally? And that's, again, much more of an issue for California than it is for Wyoming in terms of size, scale, and scope. But I am left with that question of do you have a different kind of responsibility? Should there be some sort of internal constraints? Should there be some sort of, you know, federal guidelines of like states can't pass legislation that will de facto be the law of the land, even if the Congress has not weighed in? I don't know. That's what's concerning about the ban for me is that it, it feels like there should be another way to push this forward that doesn't have to do with a ban. Because like, that's a consumer issue where yeah, we're all hoping that the technology is going to change. I'm kind of an optimist on the thing. I think that it will. But, you know, if it doesn't, you know, like the senator is saying, yes, you can roll this back. But, you know, electric cars right now are expensive. You can buy a really small one for maybe like 9K that'll take you 25 miles. But, you know, if you if you want one that's that's really usable, they're going to be at least 60, 70K. So just to be clear, the band doesn't cover used cars. But still, it seems messy. And, and, you know, and to pick up on your thought of like how far reaching this influence is going to be, like I think about Greece, where I certainly see them copying things from from other governments, California, I'm not sure. But, you know, they're offering all these incentives right now to consumers to get electric scooters, electric cars and all this stuff. But I don't think there's literally one charging station in the entire country. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you're you're 
the government is moving actually too fast uh, than what the reality is on the ground. Um, and maybe, yeah, California needs to be pulling the reins a little bit. Still, I do love the set audacious goals, at least when it comes to government. We've talked about some of the audacious problems when it comes to uh, companies in Silicon Valley and promises. So not all audacity mm. is good audacity. But governments thinking creatively about solving problems in a world where, you know, that seems to be less true than it could be. I, that is something I support unequivocally. But having some yeah. realism around that and some pragmatism and then being really careful not to empower regulatory officials to enforce rules that make no sense. Like the worst case would be 2035 comes, there isn't the infrastructure, they're still too expensive, and you still ban alternative vehicles. Probably won't happen, but it certainly could happen. Anyway, a good thing to think about as we think about solving our problems and how challenging it is, but it's really good that there are people like Bob Hertzberg who are at least trying to and believe in public service and believe in doing some good. Absolutely. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Zachary. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven. Our editor is Jordan Aaron. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Puckalomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to sign up for the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks to Amazon Music Podcast for their support of What Could Go Right. Our show is available on Amazon Music Podcast, whether you're on the go with your phone or listening through the desktop app at your computer. Play more pods with Amazon Music Podcasts. Make sure to follow, subscribe, and listen to What Could Go Right on your favorite podcast app of choice. Ours is Amazon Music, available on the app, your desktop browser, or even by asking your Amazon smart speaker to play What Could Go Right. 